Well, as you know, if you've been with us, we have been uh, taking uh, a nice long stroll through the Gospel of John, and in particular, we've slowed down and really uh, taken it uh, a nice long walk through what was called and is called the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, that was the, the time that Jesus spent with his apostles in Jerusalem in an upper room uh, the night of the what we call the Last Supper, the Passover that they spent together that night. And, and we saw all of the things that, that went on that night where Jesus washed the feet of his apostles, where uh, they shared that meal together, and where he shared with them many things, a lot of which gave them troubled hearts, some of which, a lot of which was meant to comfort them and comfort their troubled hearts. And then Jesus and his apostles, after Judas had left, the, the 11 remaining, uh, we assume, or I assume, made their way uh, in the dark of night through uh, the city of Jerusalem as Jesus continued teaching, and, and then they paused on the outskirts of the city, on the edge of the Kidron Valley in the full moon that night, and just before they crossed into the Garden of Gethsemane, mere moments before his arrest and trial and crucifixion, Jesus prayed. And he prayed what was the longest prayer, what is the longest recorded prayer that we have from Jesus in the Bible. It is known as the high priestly prayer. Uh, as we have mentioned, Jeff and I both, uh, this is really the Lord's Prayer, uh, as the prayer that he gave to his disciples uh, that we call the Lord's Prayer really was a prayer for them as disciples. But here we see what was on his heart and what he prayed for. And we saw that in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 17, Jesus began this prayer by praying for himself. And then in the longest section, that, that middle section, verses 6 through 19, he prayed for his apostles, those standing there with him. And so today, we come to the final section of this prayer, verses 20 through 26. And in this final section of prayer, we see that Jesus extends his prayer away from those who are standing there with him to include all Christians from all ages. And that encompasses the entire church, including us. This final section of the prayer specifically focuses on the unity of the church. And as I looked at this final section, I realized that there was really too much to say in one sermon. And so today is the first of a two-part message on this section. But as we look at it this morning, we will see as in our first pass-through that the unity that we see in this passage that is given to the church is a unity formed by God through, first of all, a common faith. Unity is formed by God through a common faith. Secondly, it's formed by God through a common spirit. And lastly, this unity is formed by God through a common future. A common faith, a common spirit, and a common future. Today's text is John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. As always, I encourage you to read along in, in a Bible that, uh, that you brought with you, or if you haven't brought one but would like to read along and follow along as I preach, uh, you can look in the Bible. There should be one in the seat, uh, underneath the seat in front of you. And if you're going to be using that one today, you'll find our passage on page 903. Hear the word of the Lord. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, 
that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So first of all, we see that the unity that Jesus is speaking about is formed by God through a common faith. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He says in his prayer, I do not ask for these only. Now again, Jesus has been mimicking with this prayer the prayer of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. The high priest on the Day of Atonement, when he prayed, he would pray sort of in three concentric circles. He, he would pray, first of all, for himself. Secondly, this high priest would, would pray for those closest to him, his immediate family. And then he would extend his prayer out to include all of Israel as he went in to sacrifice uh, for sin on the Day of Atonement. Jesus, as I mentioned, has finished praying for himself, and there, from verses 6 to 19, he has prayed for those closest to him, meaning these 11 remaining apostles who are there standing with him. And he has prayed for them a number of things. He, he has prayed that they be kept and protected from the evil one. He has prayed that, that God would set them apart for with his word, his word being truth, and that God would send them out, that they would be sent out into the world bearing the truth of God's word. Now the Greek word that is often translated send, to send, or sent, is the Greek word apostello. And that means to send, or to be more precise, to send specifically with a message. That's apostello, the, the verb. The word that we just transliterate, apostle, is the Greek word apostolos, which means a sent one, a sent one. More specifically, an apostle, these apostles that are sent by Jesus, were authorized ambassadors. They were authorized ambassadors of Christ sent to proclaim a message that he gave them. They were sent to proclaim a message that was not their own, but was a message that was given to them by Christ. They were, again at this point, 11 of them, Judas having left. Judas, in fact, on his way back, no doubt, with the mob to arrest Jesus. But when we factor in Matthias, who, who ends up replacing Judas, and then later also the Apostle Paul, we end up with 13. 13 of these sent ones who were sent out, and, and as we read through the book of Acts, we know that they go to all various places. As, as we read church history accounts, we know that they end up much further away than, than even we read in the book of Acts. And so you could imagine 13 guys going out bearing 13 different messages. How hard would it be to keep 13 different guys with 13 different backgrounds, 13 different levels of education, 13 different passions and, and the ways that they were raised and, and likes and dislikes and everything else as they are sent out, how difficult would it be to have them all be united in the message that they preach? But notice here that Jesus, though he is praying for those uh, who will believe in me, meaning us, he doesn't say those who will believe in me through their words. 
plural. He's sending out 13 men, and he says, who will believe in me through their word, singular. These 13 men with 13 different backgrounds and and interests and, and education levels and personalities yet end up, all of them, proclaiming one unified message. They end up proclaiming one unified gospel of truth, or as Jesus puts it here, one word. The reason, though it is 13 messages going out, the reason it's one word is because even though these men functioned as mouthpieces, they nevertheless were mouthpieces of a word and not the author of the word. They were mouthpieces of someone else's word, that word being God himself, who is the author. As Jesus prayed earlier, I have given them your word. He's speaking, he's praying here about the apostles. I have given them your word, Father. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world to proclaim your word. Now these apostles, if you just read the New Testament, you see that these apostles, first of all, began by sharing this one word, this unified gospel message, via preaching. And what's really interesting is that when you read the, 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 the book of Acts, you see them going from town to town and synagogue to synagogue and proclaiming this word from the scriptures. And at that time, there was no New Testament, which means that, that the Old Testament also points to and testifies to the same united message of Christ and the gospel of Christ. Well, what we see is not only were these apostles first sent to preach that word, those scriptures, but then we know that later some of them were empowered by and upheld by and led by the Spirit of Christ to write down the inerrant, infallible one message and one gospel. And this unified message, written here now in our Bibles, is the faith. The faith that brings about our common faith that unites us as believers in the church. Ephesians chapter 4, we read it earlier. There is one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Paul, Paul, you know, writes the vast majority of the the New Testament letters, and and Paul wrote to many different churches, uh, new churches that were springing up uh, through the preaching of the word and were, and were facing all kinds of trials and, and tribulations and temptations and everything else in, in the pagan world in which they, they sprung up. And Paul wrote letters to churches that were embroiled in a lot of bad things. But nevertheless, Paul's harshest words are actually written to the church in Galatia. And it wasn't because of some moral failing that we might think of, some kind of sexual failing or something like that 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 other churches were involved in. But he writes to to the church in Galatia and he says to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. You are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is even another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. How was it being distorted? Well, they added one work to the gospel. In that church, it was, you are saved by faith in Christ alone and by circumcision. And because one work was added to the gospel, Paul was enraged 
that they were abandoning the gospel of grace that he had preached to them. And listen to what he says. Listen, but even if we, even if Paul comes back, even if we, or, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The Christian faith, true Christian faith, has a specific content concerning a specific Lord, and that content must not be altered, even in the slightest, or else the Christian church cannot have a common faith. You know, despite what our secular society might claim, and some of us have probably heard this here and there as as many people are lumped into Christianity, if you know anything about Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witness, they are not a Christian religion. They're not part of the Christian faith. They both have so deviated from major points of the Christian faith that they are cults. They both deny fundamentals of the truth of God's word. And therefore, when adherents follow strictly to that message, they are not brought into that common faith of Christianity. One of my favorite books of all time is a book entitled Christianity and Liberalism. Uh, written by J. Gresham Machen. Now, he was writing about liberal Christianity. And he started out uh, writing the book and, and thought he was going to title it Conservatism and Liberalism and contrasting two forms of Christianity. And the more that he studied liberal Christianity, the more he came to the conclusion that it was not, in fact, Christianity, that it was a different religion altogether because it had abandoned so many fundamental truths of the Christian faith, and it had become a faith that could not save. And that's why, when you wish to join this church, it's why we have a membership seminar, uh, and and why we uh, require everyone who might think about joining the church to attend the membership seminar, because we want you to know what is the content of the faith that we here proclaim? And we also, if you go through the membership seminar and desire to join the church, we also want to interview you. Because we want to know as best we can, based on your own profession, that you also hold to that common faith. That common faith that has been proclaimed for thousands of years. It's also why, as as you uh, know, if you've, been, if you've been a member here for a long time, or if you've been attending for a long time, or even if you're here this morning, uh, you know that we confess our faith every morning. That confession of faith, where we stand and, and, and confess a, a different creed or confession each week, we do this every Sunday in part to remind us not only what is the content of our faith, but to remind us that what is being preached here this morning is the same faith that has been proclaimed in the church faithfully for thousands of years, that we stand in a long line of others who have come to know Christ through the common faith. And how amazing is it, Christian, that standing there that night, Jesus was praying for you. That as Jesus was praying, as he was about to go to the cross, he had you on his mind. That he was looking forward in history and praying for every one who would believe in him. And how amazing is it, Christian, that our Lord not only ensured that that first generation would hear the preached word of the gospel, that common faith, but that God in his providence would preserve that faith for us, so that we, even living thousands of years after, would be able to hear the message proclaimed and come to know our Savior through the same truth that he has preserved all of these years. As Romans 10 says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So the church's unity, this unity that Jesus is praying for, is formed, first of all, by God through a common faith. But second of all, our unity is formed by God through a common spirit. Look at verses 21 through 23. Jesus says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And here is where you really see repeated again and again that theme of unity. See, for true unity to happen, faith, that common faith, is presumed. You, you can't have unity if you don't have faith. Faith is a necessity for unity. But you see, for, for true unity to happen, the church needs a common faith. But you see, a person cannot come to faith, cannot embrace that ever long-standing common doctrine unless that person is given both the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Jesus said in John 3, he answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the, the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus says in John 6, 33, 63, it is the spirit, you see, who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Paul says in Titus 3, 5, and 6, God saved us, you see, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit who illumines and applies the word, that common faith, to our hearts, who brings to us that common saving faith. Another way to put it is that without the Holy Spirit and without his work, this word, the word that I'm preaching to you this morning, would fall on deaf ears. Now, if you look closely at Jesus' words in verses 21 to 23, you see that our unity with each other, our, our, what you might call our horizontal unity, Christian to Christian, is rooted in and is the result of our unity by the Spirit with the Father and the Son. Our horizontal unity is the fruit of our vertical unity. We have no horizontal unity unless we are all first joined by the Spirit to the Father and the Son. Notice, if you just look at the, the, even his, his exact statements on unity, notice that Jesus does not pray that the unity of Christians be rooted in one another. 
It's not rooted in one another. Rather, he prays that the unity of the Christians be rooted in the Father and the Son. That's where he roots the unity of Christians. Look, he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. He says that, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. And notice in verse 22, Jesus speaks, although, although he's speaking about the future church, although he's speaking about the church yet to come, those who will believe in the word of the apostles, notice that he speaks as having already accomplished this unity. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. What glory is Jesus talking about? Well, if you just look at the prayer, he bookends this prayer, this Lord's Prayer, speaking about his glory. It's at the very beginning and the very end. If you look at verse 5, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And if you go to uh, the end, uh, essentially, of this prayer, uh, part of our passage today in verse 24, what does he say? Well, it's again here now at the end. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Once again, he, he's saying almost the, the same thing. Jesus as the eternal Son. Jesus as God the Son the eternal Son, has been eternally sharing in this divine glory from all eternity, way before the world began. And so when Jesus talks about us, uh, mere humans, mere creatures, his creation, uh, we have not been in existence from all eternity. We are not the divine Son. We don't get to share in that glory in exactly the same way. Uh, when we are united to Christ by faith, yes, we end up sharing in his glory, but we don't become God. We never will. We are not the Father's only begotten Son from all eternity. However, when we receive the Holy Spirit, Scripture says that we receive the Spirit of adoption as sons, and so being adopted sons we get to share in the Son's glory in all eternity. Now, when we see this language here about me being in them, them being in me, where have we seen this language before? Well, if you just rewind a little bit to the upper room discourse, we see the same exact language when Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit what he calls another helper. Jesus says this. This is kind of cutting out a few, kind of, kind of uh, putting together a lot of these statements. He says this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. And when Jesus says he dwells with you, I believe there he's saying, you have seen him in me. He has been operating in me in the fullness of the Spirit, and you've seen him now for three years. You know him because he dwells with you in my person, but when I leave and send him, he will be in you. See, I will not leave you as orphans. And then listen to what he says. When the Spirit comes to you, I will come to you. When you receive the Spirit, you receive me. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. That is, if you 
think back, that was that doctrine that I talked about, that doctrine of co-inherence, that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are separate, distinct persons, but, but in their work, they, they co-inhere with one another. That, that when you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive the Son. And when you receive the Son, you receive the Father. Jesus says this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. Our unity with one another is the fruit or the result of our unity by the Spirit with the Father and the Son. Just look at what Jesus says in verse 23. If you want to see a statement that should... Uh, raise your eyebrows this morning. Verse 23, Jesus says, I and them, you and me, that they may, may, may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them even as you loved me. Consider that, Christian, for a moment. That God the Father loves you as much as he loves his only begotten son. He says, you have loved them even as you have loved me. Now how else, how else can we, fallen, rebellious sinners, be loved? How can we receive the same love that the eternal Father gives eternally to the Son, except that we have by the Spirit been adopted and been given the privilege of sonship and made joint heirs with the Son, the eternal Son. And this means that all believers, because we have all been given that Spirit the Holy Spirit, we have been spiritually united. It's happened. Whether you feel like it or not, every believer has been united by the same Holy Spirit, and we have all been made sons and daughters of the King. And this means that believers are united by the work of a sovereign God in a way that easily transcends all differences. You see, because we are spiritually united by that same Holy Spirit and by the sovereign, omnipotent power of God, Scripture says that the dividing walls, these flimsy cardboard walls that we put up because we at one point didn't like one another, have been broken down by God. Scripture makes that abundantly clear, that this has already happened. 1 Corinthians 12. Now, there are a variety of gifts in the church among Christians, but you see, the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord the variety, there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. It's interesting there that Paul lists the Trinity, the same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God at work in the church. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, you see what he says, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul says, he talks about this dividing wall in Ephesians 2. He, he's talking primarily to most of us, I would imagine, in this room. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh who were called the uncircumcision by the Jews, what is called the circumcision, which is really a circumcision made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You, Gentiles in the flesh, you had no hope. You were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us, Jew and Gentile, one. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. For though, for through him, we both have access in one spirit, you see, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. There's that foundation of apostolic teaching. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Colossians, Paul repeats the same kind of thing. Here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Galatians 3, for you see, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, because this uniting is done spiritually by a sovereign work of God, by his Holy Spirit, and not done by flimsy human effort, what happens is this common faith and this common spirit that we share unites Christians from all walks of life in a common bond that transcends any earthly differences that we might have. I personally experienced this in, a, in, a, in an astounding way when I went uh, a few years ago, uh, some of you actually, we went together to, to Denmark. Uh, to, to preach, I went there to preach uh, the gospel and to teach the Bible to Iranian refugees. These were Iranian people who had come to faith in Christ. They were now being persecuted by Muslims in their own land and had to flee and made their way to Denmark and were living in a refugee camp. Now, if you think about how how many differences there were. We, they and I, in so many earthly ways, couldn't have been more different. Uh, we came from completely different countries, different backgrounds. They grew up in a different religion. Uh, we had language barriers. We had, in some ways, some clothing barriers. Uh, we even had dietary uh, differences. I uh, was used to having a hot breakfast, you know, eggs and bacon and maybe pancakes or something for breakfast, and every morning uh, we were served an Iranian or a Persian breakfast, and they eat far better than we do, uh, nutritionally speaking. They had cold breakfasts. They had hummus sitting out on the table. They had vegetables and they had hard-boiled eggs and it was like everything we had for breakfast was cold and I never quite did I mean I felt better eating their breakfast but as soon as I got back here I, I ate a nice hot breakfast uh, I still never really came to love their breakfast but you see we didn't we had so many differences and we had no time together to even build anything in common what, I, I had no time there to even build some kind of relationship. And nevertheless, because we were both in Christ and because we were both united by his spirit, the second that I met these brothers and sisters, I felt a truer and deeper bond with them than I have with non-Christian friends that I grew up with in school that I shared thousands of hours with 
in school. I, have a closer, I had a, a closer and deeper bond with them as brothers and sisters than I have with my neighbors who are non-Christians who I see every day and wave to and talk to at the bus stop and we have over for pool parties and all of these things. The church's unity is formed by God, and it's formed by God through a common faith and through a common spirit. Lastly, it is formed by God through a common future. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. See, in one sense, and, uh, and it's an important sense, uh, and this is why we, we love to hear, uh, when we do membership interviews, we love to hear everyone's testimony. Because in one sense, every Christian's testimony is different. We all have different backgrounds, we all came to know Christ in different ways, and, and it's, it's a joy and a privilege and, and, an, and, a, and a, a great thing in a pastor's life, in an elder's life, to, to hear that individual story of how you were brought to Christ. And yet, and yet in another really important sense, no matter what our beginning was, no matter what our individual testimony is, in another real sense, we all have the same testimony. We all have exactly the same beginning. We all have exactly the same entrance into the family of God. Because no matter what our background, we were all equally lost. No matter what our background, we were all equally dead in trespasses and sins. No matter what our background, we were all equally rebels. We were all needing to be presented by the Word with the Word in some way whether it's reading the Bible or hearing it preached or taught, we all had to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit and given new life. And we all had to be brought to that point by the Word and by the Spirit, that point of repentance where we ask God to forgive us. We all entered the family of God the same way. We all had the same beginning. And similarly, we will all have, in a really important way, different journeys home. We, we all will deal with different Sins, different besetting sins, different problems, different uh, 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 hardships in this life as we journey home to God. And it's important that we know that we all have different journeys so that we can talk to each other and, and maybe help someone in their unique struggle. But despite the different journeys, we all have the same ending. All of the saints... Whatever their life on this earth was, all the saints who have gone on before us, even as I speak these words, are with the Lord of glory in his immediate presence, in the splendor of his glory. And one day, when this world comes to an end, we will all be with the Lord together, no matter what our journey was basking in the presence of his glory. And that's what Jesus is longing for here. I desire, Father, that they one day all be with me where I am to see my glory. That's where we're headed. And when we reach glory, we will all be glorified. That's what we call it. We will all be made perfect. We will all be sinless. We will all be loving and being loved perfectly by all the other glorified saints. And this future is already guaranteed because the Holy Spirit is called our guarantee. The Holy Spirit is called our down payment of this future glory and this future inheritance. And it is the Holy Spirit who is already at work beginning this work of glory in us, which we see now. He's giving us a glimpse of the glory that we will have in the future. Christian, I don't want to make you feel weird right now, so I won't necessarily ask you right now to look around at everyone sitting next to you. But before you leave today, look around at everyone in this room. Look at the person in this room 
that most annoys you. And understand that you are that person for someone else. (laughs) It's not one-way street. Even the person that most bothers you, even the person that a Christian that you can't seem to click with no matter how hard you try, even that Christian who has wronged you, even the Christian that you have wronged, even the one that you have some envy for, even the one who has treated you poorly, that brother or sister and you will one day look like something and be something and someone so glorious and beautiful that C.S. Lewis says if if you were to see what they will be then, now, you would be tempted to worship them. We are one day, Christian, headed to glory. And one day we will all treat each other perfectly. That day isn't here yet. And that's what next week's sermon is about. What, the Christian life isn't already and not yet. Jesus has laid the already. Uh, Next week, we will be looking uh, at some more closely at, at how we work at the unity that God has already given us in Christ. But you see, this morning, I want to give us hope. I want to lay the foundation that Christ did to show us that our unity is not something we create, but something that God, by His Word and Spirit, has already done. I want, in conclusion, to to leave us with one final thought. Something that maybe you didn't think of. Notice how many times Jesus repeats the word one. He he doesn't really use the, the word unity. He means unity, but he uses the word one. Now, the word one in Greek and Hebrew was used in two really important ways. It was used to point to uniqueness, or to unity. And the, the Jew, the second temple Jew, who was those apostles, Jesus, who, who lived during that day, who would have been standing there with him, they recited every morning and every evening the most important creed that the Jewish people had. It was called the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says in there, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That was their creed. And that use of the word one points to the uniqueness of God. The Jews in the whole of the Roman Empire were the standouts. They were the ones who didn't accept the pantheon and say that all gods are equal. They were the ones who said, our God is the only true God. And when they recited the Lord is one, they were speaking of God's uniqueness. But the Jews used the word one to speak not only to the uniqueness of God, but to the unity of God's chosen people. And the Jews at that time, during the Second Temple period, would have no doubt felt heartbreak. Heartbreak that the Jewish people who were once united had been divided, and irreparably so. That the Jewish people who were united in the monarchy under King David had been separated, had been broken apart, and had been made uh, come to the point where they hated one another, and that unity was never repaired, and they both were destroyed and exiled. No doubt there was no hope that any human being could restore this unity, except that God in the Old Testament promised God's people that once again, one day, they would all be united. He made these promises in the Old Testament where he said, one day, I would myself reunite the people of Israel, and I will accomplish this through my Messiah, the coming David. We see this most drastically and and for us probably most importantly in Ezekiel chapter 37 where he says I want you to to take two sticks I want you to hold them up and and on one stick have Judah and on the other have Israel and I want you 
to bring them together and hold them together because he says, I will join Israel, the stick that says Israel, I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick. And he says, I will make them one nation and I will give them one king who will be king over all. Furthermore, I will save them from all their backslidings. I will cleanse them. They will be my people. I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. And God says in Ezekiel 37, and when this happens, then all the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. It's exactly the kind of wording that Jesus is using in this prayer. So I believe that when Jesus prayed this prayer, the apostles who heard it that night heard him saying something more than just, I want my people to get along. What he was saying was, I am the Messiah. I am the one. I am the son of David. I am the shepherd. I am the fulfiller of all of these promises. And I am about to bring together my people Israel, including the Gentiles, and they will all be one family, just as was promised in the Old Testament. How excited those apostles, I'm assuming, were when they heard these words, that, that Jesus is about to fulfill these promises. What they didn't know was how he was going to do it, although he had already told them in John 10. In John 10, they heard him say, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep, you see, that are not of this fold. They're coming in the future. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and so there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's what he promised. I'll close with this. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, our greatest need, the church's greatest need, is to recapture the New Testament teaching concerning the church. If only we could see ourselves in terms of it, we would realize that we are the most privileged people on earth that there is nothing to be compared with being a Christian and a member of the mystical body of Christ. Christian, this morning as we leave, remember what a gift you have been given to be a member of God's family, to be one of his sheep, and to be reminded this morning that this gift was given to us because on the cross, the only begotten son was made an enemy so that you and I could be made a son or daughter of the king. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this great reminder. Thank you that you have done it. You have fulfilled these promises. You have made your church one in spirit and in faith. You have promised us the same glorious future. And Father, we pray that you would help us to live our days in light of that knowledge and by your spirit that we would reflect that unity to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.